So we are continuing the series, Unlikely Heroes. We're going to be talking about Gideon. Uh, you might have heard that already this morning. Um, Gideon. Uh, before we get to the biblical story, let me talk about Gideon, Jerry Baal. Uh, there's no archaeological evidence, really no tangible, extra-biblical uh, record to uh, his existence. We have the biblical record, and it's a, an extensive biblical record when it comes to this period of time. He's in three chapters over the course uh, in Judges 6 through 8. And there are several thoughts about him. Um, the first is that it was, this was, may not have been just one person, that it might have been Gideon and Jerry Baal, which um, I'll explain in a minute too, that that might have originally been two people and that it was brought together to, to, into one story. Uh, the name Jerry Baal has two meanings. It's uh, the second name of Gideon in the, in the reading in, in Judges 6, if, when you look there. Uh, Baal strives or let Baal strive against him with the thought being from that stream of thinking that the combination of, of the names was, was uh, to, to bring together the story of Gideon when he tore down the altars of Baal. And, and let me say, Baal, 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 or Baal, all the same. <laughs> B-A-A-L, uh, lots of different, different people announce it lots of different ways, or three different ways anyway. Um, a little bit about this from the uh, schola- scholarly perspective. There's a, a German scholar, he's passed now, his name is Martin Knopf, and this is the way he put it. He put, instead of explaining the tensions in the history of graphic texts in terms of the divergent literary sources, the two sources, uh, he attributed the contradictions to different traditions preserved simultaneously in different places and among different groups, uh, but brought together, conjoined by a later Deuteronomist editor or editors to produce the, what we have now, the present composite picture. Um, and aside about the Hebrew language, the words in Hebrew often carry different meanings. So, for example, Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans. Some of you all know that, that Abraham came from, uh, from the, the land of Ur. Uh, and so it's the name of a place, but Ur also means light. Um, the same, similarly, Baal, or Baal, refers to a deity, but it's also a Hebrew word. And it has several different meanings. One is husband, that's in Proverbs 12.4. Another is master in Exodus 22.8. And archers in Genesis 49:23, but that's really master of archers. So it's kind of similar to that second meaning, and that may mean that might be some of the difficulty we have in the name Jeroboam may come from that, that that there's just different ways of looking at this one word. And we talked briefly about this. And I'm not going to get deep into this, but there are different streams of thought in the Old Testament, uh, in particular in the Pentateuch, but and throughout the Old Testament that there were four streams of writing that scholars point to. One is Yahwist, Elohist, uh, Deuteronomist, and Priestly, that those streams brought together these stories with their kind of their perspective, the human part of Scripture when it's written, God and, and humans together, to bring together different paradigms. And, and I'm not going to get into this scholarly, is there, are they valid or what? I will tell you that there's evidence, the reason that they exist is that there is evidence to support each of those perspectives. Now, having said that, you're going to be used to this, too. Uh, our focus today is Gideon, and as usual, where I'm going to go is that I will operate from the belief that Gideon is who Scripture says he is, and he did what Scripture says he did. I don't see a reason not to think that. The unlikely part for Gideon is clear from the beginning, because he's hiding. He's hiding from the Midianites uh, on, the, on, on the floor when God comes to him, think, and he's thinking he's not of much worth. And yet he, the angel shows up and calls him mighty warrior. And, 
And so that, that's where we begin. And, and I found this clip. I know I've been reading a lot of scripture to you, but I found this clip. So let's go with it. Gideon. So part of God's story is about a man named Gideon. And it begins like this. Israel, God's special family, had turned against the one real God and worshipped idols. They had forgotten how God had loved and cared for them and needed a reminder that he was the one in charge. So God took away the Israelites' farms for seven long years. Whenever the Israelites planted crops, God would let another nation called the Midianites sweep through and camp on Israel's land, ruining everything that was growing there. But even though his own family had forgotten him, God still loved them deeply. So, at the end of the seven years, God appeared to a young Israelite named Gideon. God said he was going to free the Israelites with Gideon's help. Gideon, however, wasn't so sure, so he asked God to prove himself by performing a series of miracles. Gideon said, If the fleece is wet with dew in the morning but the ground is dry, then I will know that you're going to help me rescue Israel as you promised. That's what happened. Just to be sure, the next night, Gideon asked God to do the opposite, make the fleece dry and make the ground wet. And God did it. Next, he even sent a sign through an angel. Gideon was finally convinced that God was in his corner, so he called together an army to fight against the Midianites. Now, normally, having lots of people is a good thing when you're about to battle. But like I said, God does things a bit differently. He told Gideon that the Israelites had too many soldiers. If they won now, God knew the Israelites would say it was because of their own strength and brag about it. So, God wanted Gideon to have a smaller army. Gideon was nervous, but he did as God asked, which is always a good idea, by the way. He told his men that if they were afraid, they could return home. With that, 22,000 soldiers left, leaving Gideon with about 10,000. For you math whizzes, that's two-thirds of his army just poof, gone. Even after all that, the army was still too big. So God told Gideon to take the soldiers down to the water to drink. And then, send home the soldiers who drank out of the stream like dogs. Again, Gideon did what God asked and was now left with only 300 soldiers. God knew Gideon was probably worried, so he told him to sneak down to the enemy camp where Gideon heard soldiers talking about a crazy dream where a loaf of bread rolled into the Midianite camp and over their tent. One soldier said that could only mean that Gideon would triumph over them. Gideon returned to his own camp confident that he would win the battle. He divided his men into three groups and gave them each a trumpet and a jar with a torch inside. Not usually what you bring to a fight, but God had a plan. Gideon's army reached the edge of the Midianite camp and then went into action. They blew their trumpets, smashed their jars, and shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! And don't forget, they did all of this without a single weapon in their hands. Terrified, the Midianites fled, accidentally attacking each other as they went. In fact, they ran so far from the battlefield that other Israelites were able to capture and defeat the leaders of the Midianites. With the enemy leaders gone and their army running away, God had saved Israel, just like he said he would. And that's the story of Gideon. So, in case you missed it, here's the quick version. Israel turned away from God. God reminded them he was in charge. God said he would save Israel. He would use Gideon. God performed miracles for Gideon. Gideon gathered an army. 
God made it smaller, much smaller. Soldiers had a dream. Gideon's army surprised their enemies. The Midianites ran away. God used Gideon to save Israel. And that's a part of God's story. So that's the story of Gideon. So you've got it, right? So now we'll join hands and say a prayer and head on out. No, no, you know better. <laughs> Gideon. Uh, Gideon, compared to the others, as I mentioned, uh, he gets a lot of print. I mean, Judges 6 through 8 are about him, and, it, and that's a lot. For Most judges are one chapter or less. Uh, but after winning the battle, the Israelites, in fact, tried to make him king. And he said, no, the Lord will rule over you. Gideon had enough sense to not take that on. And and he knew that God had delivered this. You know, Corey was dead on. The, the he, actual hero in this is God. You know, they, Gideon's heroic act was probably when he said, no, let the Lord rule over you. I'm not going to be your king. You know, continue to trust him. So he was a big deal at that point. But got to drop back, right? Where did we start? And when we first meet him, he's threshing wheat in a wine press. Threshing wheat in a wine press for his father, Joash, to keep it from the Midianites. He's hiding. He's not, you know, he's, he's afraid that the Midianites are going to get him. So that's where he is, and that's where the angel greets him. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior, you know. And he argues, of course. You're seeing a theme there with all these guys. Argues with God uh, that he's not a mighty, mighty warrior. In fact, he says, I'm from the weakest tribe of all. I'm from Manasseh. We're the smallest tribe of all of the tribes. I'm not a mighty warrior. The angel you, tells the angel, you must be wrong. In other words, he's telling God, similar to Moses, you must be wrong. It's, you got the wrong guy. It can't be me. And then God has Gideon. He, he does. He follows through, though. He's, he has Gideon go, and he tears down the altars to Baal and Asherah poles, which angers the people. They want to come and kill him. But his dad, Joash, saves him by pointing out that if Baal, want, Baal wants him dead, Baal can kill him. You guys don't need to do that. And, and so turn, kind of said, put it back on Baal. And, of course, Baal didn't kill him because, you know, he kept going. So Joash actually saves Gideon. And then the, then the armies come across the Jordan, the Midianites and the Malachites and the Otherites and, and all of them. You know, they could, from the east, they, they cross the Jordan, and, and, and they're coming to t- attack Israel. So Gideon blows his trumpet. You know, trumpets are big with Gideon, right? Uh, and, and so he blows his trumpet, but he also sends messengers to gather the army, this army that we're talking about. And then he does an interesting thing. He does that, and then he proceeds to test God. Now, we know good and well that's not supposed to be, right? Deuteronomy 6.16, Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God as ye tempted him in Massah. And yet Gideon does. It's really clear. First, he requires God to put dew on the fleece that he lays out instead of on the ground. Make that wet, ground dry. And, of course, that happens. So, but he's not done testing God. He continues. He said, well, that, that's cool. Well, he might not have said that's cool. He said, but he said, well, you did that, but let's do the other now. Can you do that? And he did. A dry fleece and wet ground. And so God wanted Gideon to bring together this, an army to take on an enormous Midianite army of over 100,000. You know, that's the thing. Is, yeah, he had 30, but the other one was massive. It was a big army. So he has 32,000 men, according to Judges 7. It's not as sizable as the Midianite army, but it's enough to, for Gideon to kind of go, okay, well, we got a shot <laughs> anyway. You know, we have a chance. And that's when he starts the culling process. He decides he's going to have his own list of tests. He's going to do his own testing. 
And so he has Gideon stand up and send home anyone who is afraid. Now, 22,000 <laughs> went home. There's a lot of folks that were afraid in, the, in this thing because they were probably going logic. 100, 150,000 Midianites, 30,000 us, not good, not good. And then the next test is really interesting to me because I don't know that I've seen many folks go and lap up, you know, from a river like a dog. But he has them do that, and almost all of them kind of do the opposite of what you would think. And so 9,700 of them go home, and now there's 300. And Gideon had to be nervous, worried. You know, he started with 32. Now he's got 300. But God had another Jericho. Remember Jericho? God's battle plan that didn't make any sense to anybody but God. We're going to get together and we're going to walk around the city and then at the end of the week we're going to yell at it and the walls will come down. Yeah, that's what we'll do. He had another one of those plans in mind. They weren't going to invade or attack to wipe out the Midianites. So Gideon goes in, he hears their conversation, realizes that God is already at work in the Midianite camp, and then he gives them, I wish, I wish I had the ability, you know, I, I thought about, I should go get some toy trumpets and some clay jars so that we could, you know, be Gideon's army in here this morning. And I thought, well, we probably can't afford to do that. Um, <laughs> but wouldn't that be fun? Some of y'all would be like, and some of y'all would be breaking clay jars. That, that, that would be the battle plan. That's the attack. That's how they win, right? You know, it's silly, right? It, you'd, feel, you'd probably feel silly even this morning, you know, wait, this is a... I don't want to break this. Yeah, break it. Make some noise. That's what we're going to do. And, and, and holler out. And then they, the Midianites get scared. They start attacking each other. They run away. And you saw the rest of the, of the story. So what are some takeaways from this for us? And I put the word gratefully on there because God, the point being, God can work with a little bit of faith. Thankfully, gratefully. We don't have to be a lion of faith for God to grab hold of us. Gideon argued with God. He said, you got the wrong guy. I'm from the weakest tribe. This is, I'm hiding right now, and, and yet you're going to use me? That makes no sense. And maybe you're sitting there going, I don't have the biblical knowledge. I don't have the understanding. I don't, I'm not very good at talking. Maybe that's okay. Maybe that's okay. You know, God can work through anyone, even timid believers, even scared folks. Leaders don't have to be the boldest and the most extroverted. They just don't. God works through believers who come from the least of the least, like Gideon and the most of the most, but he'll find us, right? And when we're hiding, when we're hiding from what we're afraid of or uncertain of, God is with us. God is not deserting us. God is not leaving us. God is walking through it with us. All we have to do is rely and have faith in that. God can work with a little bit of faith. But God wants us to trust him. I guarantee that was not easy for Gideon as he's sending home the army. You know, as his security is taken away. See, God didn't want any crutches. God didn't want Gideon to think that it was all about him or all about the army. He, he wanted it to be clear who was the hero in this story. So he plays along with the test, but at the end, when it comes to the actual battle, he refuses to let Gideon have a security blanket. He takes the blanket away, and then he takes the next one away. And he's there, and all he's got is trust and faith in God. 300 from 32,000. 
no, no weapons. And they won because of God. And I know in our lives, a lot of times we have various kind of cushions that offer us comfort and, and, and that we can hide behind. Sometimes we have a job that gives us more than enough income for cozy retirement or cozy living or other members of the church. May we know that we're kind of called into an area, but we let other members of the church step into those areas or in ministry outside the walls. You know, we know where, where God's kind of trying to get us to go, but it's kind of like, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to do it, so I'm going to let somebody else do that. And you can run from God. But don't hide, because you can't. He is with you in it all. And he will pull you out of your comfort zone. He will pull me out of, he has pulled my, me out of, this is not my comfort zone. He has pulled me out of my comfort zone. It's who he is, but he doesn't leave us. He walks with us. He allows us and helps us to live in the uncomfortability of faith. Because if we're going to walk in faith, true faith, then we're going to hit some uncomfortable points. Or we're really just relying on ourselves. If I can do it, I don't need God. i got to get out where I can't. And then I have to rely on God. To rely on God is to be willing to have, have him remove our army. To reduce us to 300. To take away the money, maybe the money or the material things or anything else that makes us rely primarily on him. Uh, primarily on ourselves and secondarily on him or third early or fourth early. You know, there's a list sometimes. We, how, do we get, how do we elevate his priority? How do we elevate him so we rely more on him? Because if we can do that, then the impossible can happen. And don't miss that Gideon didn't think highly of himself. Gideon thought he was the lowest of the low, and yet God grabbed him. He was sure the angel had it wrong. He was sure God had it wrong. And like David coming from the wrong vocation, Gideon came from the wrong tribe. The weakest of the weak, Manasseh. Paul wrote this to the church at Corinth in his second letter, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest in me. Now, this is strange for us. This is the pursuit of weakness. This is weird and ups upside down in our world because what Paul is saying is, look, I'm, I'm good with my weaknesses because that's when Christ shows up. When I'm reduced down to 300, God shows up and carries the day. That is why for Christ's sake, this one, I... I I'll just be blunt. I, I'm not at this point in my faith journey yet. But Paul wrote this. He said, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I pray for that day when I can get to that place where I can delight no matter what is going on, whether I think it's good or I think it's bad or whatever it is, and I can just delight in those and, and see God move in them. In recovery, we have this saying, it's surrender to win. We surrender. What it means is that we surrender the battle against addiction. Well, what do you mean? Well, it, I, if I can fight my addiction, my addiction beats me. I guarantee it. I spent 15 years fighting my addiction. I lost. So I surrender to my addiction, and I focus on my recovery. 
I move from here, and I get over here. I surrender. I quit fighting so that I can focus here. I do the do's, and I don't worry about the don'ts as much. If I do the do's, and I get to stay clean and sober today. My focus is living in recovery, not stuck in the hurt habit or hang up. I identify it so that I can move into recovery from it. And that's, that surrender idea is a tough one. God is different from us. This is scripture from last week, rolling back around. It's Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. See, God is different. He sees things differently. Every story that we've looked at so far, God did something different than what we would have expected. For those of us who don't think we're enough, look at Gideon. There he is, Gideon, who didn't think he was enough. And in the end, the people wanted to make him king. How crazy is that? Gideon had enough wherewithal to not do that. From the thresh- it was a good story from the threshing room to the throne room, you know. But he, he, he didn't go there. He knew that he knew that he knew who the real king was. Who the real king was. And he deferred to him. And I think many of us are committed to Jesus. And, and Rick and I have this conversation periodically about this idea of Jesus as Lord and Savior. I think everybody in the room is very grateful that Jesus is our Savior, Right? He saves us. We, we have eternity before us. Thank you, Jesus, for my salvation. We struggle more, if we're honest, with Jesus as Lord of every aspect of my life. That's commitment versus surrender, right? Am I going to surrender everything? Because that's when he becomes Lord of my life. And am I willing to do that? And I don't know many of us that are totally surrendered to him. And that led me to a, kind of a looking, looking through some stuff, and I found this story. What's the difference between commitment and surrender? When you make a commitment, you're still in constro- control, no matter how noble the thing you commit to. You choose to the commitment. One can commit to pray, to study the Bible, to give his money, or to commit to automobile payments or to lose weight. Whatever he chooses to do, we can commit to. Surrender is different. If someone holds a gun and asks you to lift your hands in the air as a token of surrender, you don't tell the person, yeah, I'm committed to do it. You just do it. That's surrender. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm committed to raise. No, I just do it. I just follow where God would lead. So it begs the question, what areas of your life, what areas of my life, what areas of our lives have we not surrendered to God? That's the question for you to take home. That's the question for me to wrestle with today. What am I not surrendering to God? What, to give up the argument and just surrender. To let go of the things that I'm withholding from Him. And all of us do this. So that's part of what I've challenge you to wrestle with. I want to leave with this question too. It's the same one from last week. We can wrestle with stuff forever, but why not now? Why not deal with this now? Why not change our hearts now? Why not move to surrender now? Why not go into that area of ministry now? Why not follow where God would have you now? Just want you to know just a couple of things. I know that we're, we're, it's, I don't want to spend a lot of time. 
God loves you huge. Right where you are, right here you are, God's love for you is huge. Whatever you've done, wherever you come from, whether you think you're Gideon, whether you're a Daniel, whether you're any, anywhere in between, God's love for you is real and it's tangible and it's big. So just know that he loves you that way. If you're going through some stuff, God will walk you through it because it's his nature. That love that he has, he will walk you through. Okay? Just know that. Um, and be who you are. Be who you are for him. You know, my, you know my thing. But be who you are. You are uniquely created to be who you are in the body of Christ. Be who you are, but offer it to God and watch what he does. Guess when these impossible things that we talk about and sing about begin to come about. May the love of God the Father and the grace of God his Son and the power of God the Holy Spirit fill you, lift you, and lead you each day of this week and each day of your life. Be blessed as you are a blessing in the lives of others. Amen.